I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, we're in for a wonderful episode today. My guest for today is Anna Sweeney, who is a registered dietitian who I have had the wonderful fortune of working with for many, many years. It's a really interesting episode that we have today. We are going to be talking about things such as barriers to treatment. We're going to be talking about barriers to treatment for people that have physical disabilities. We are talking about the racial disparities as to who gets care, weight stigma in a diagnosis, this and so much more. It's unbelievable. We also bring in Anna's story or narrative about her own experience with her sister who struggled with an eating disorder. So as always, there's a lot going on in this podcast episode, so I hope you enjoy. And here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. All right, as I always say, we're in for such a treat. My guest for today is a dear friend and dear colleague, Anna Sweeney. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Karen. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm delighted to have you for the second time because I would like listeners to know that Anna is such a trooper. The first time the recording did not come out so well. So this is Anna's second time on the show for this uh, for this episode. So Anna, I just want to say thank you for again showing up and doing the show for us. I wouldn't miss it for the world. And it's delightful to see you for like a whole hour. I know. This is why this is why I feel so lucky cuz I get to see all these beautiful souls while I'm doing this 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 interview. So Anna, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do, who you are, and for listeners to know, Anna is a brilliant dietitian who is not recovered. Anna has not experienced an eating disorder and her words are so so important to hear. So you know every once in a while I bring a guest on that's not had an eating disorder. So Anna, could you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Anna. I am so delighted to be here with you, Karen. What a pleasure. Uh, I am exclusively an eating disorder dietitian, most certainly a one-trick pony. I have dedicated the last 13 years of my life to the treatment of eating disorders. Uh, And 
As Karen mentioned, I am not a recovered professional. I came into the field because a person that I love very deeply struggled with an eating disorder. And I <laughs> I actually will tell some stories about this later if we have time. Um, really didn't know anything about anything, but I really wanted to tell my per- this person, my sister, uh, that people get well. And so I became an eating disorder dietitian. I went to school with the intention of working in the field uh, and have just been very, very privileged to have had the opportunities that I've had and to be able to speak with you now about them. I can't believe it's been 13 years because that means I have known you for like 10 years, eight years. Oh my gosh. Anna, time flies. Sorry, listeners. I'm just sort of like going down memory lane for a minute. It is so, it is so true. I'm does fly. Um, and we, we have known each other for almost a decade. Yeah. Probably even sooner. Cause I, I knew of you before I came back from California when I was working out in California. So All right, everybody. So we're going to get off of this and we're going to actually go into a little bit more of the podcast. So Anna, you know where I want to start is you do a lot of um, social media things about social justice. Tell me what barriers do you think still exist in the field of eating disorders? Because you have a beautiful voice about it. Um, Hmm. I appreciate the the compliment, and I don't think that I am uh, the consummate voice speaking about this, but I believe that there are so many oppressive uh, systems that are still in place in the eating disorder field. Uh, for the sake of being concise, I think speaking about accessibility is really where the conversation needs to start. There are lots of folks who are suffering, who don't have access to care. Um, This is one of the reasons why I will always take insurance in my private practice and I will always make myself as available as possible, acknowledging that that doesn't doesn't even matter because not everyone has, you know, benefits. Uh, And thinking about the barriers to folks getting into higher levels of care um, largely being insurance based. Um, and so I don't, I don't have an answer for how to topple that problem. I think the other, and there are many other areas of oppression, thinking about folks who are on, um, or are members of the LGBTQ plus communities and how we make space for them. Um, inviting them into, for example, like our residential program, what that might have looked like and how we can best honor the lived experience of folks who perhaps we as practitioners can't individually um, identify with and still needing to be certain that they get the care that they deserve. Um, There are certainly racial disparity in terms of who gets care uh, and and then it leads me to question, like, so am I even the best person to take care of someone um, with very, very, very different life experiences by virtue of race? And I think this is a, 
a, a particularly poignant time for us to be having this conversation because the um, overt oppression and systemic um, racism and oppression in our culture runs very, very deep. Uh, and I believe that it also trickles down into our field. The last thing I'm going to speak about is actually just about weight stigma and the fact that the DSM has just evolved. Um, and like the diagnosis of atypical anorexia is, is a diagnosis of weight stigma, right? We're saying you, you have anorexia and you're also fat. And so by virtue of that, we need to throw an adjective that means nothing, um, but it means a lot to the folks who, who receive that diagnosis. And I'm grateful for that diagnosis because it means that people in larger bodies get care, even though the new DSM changed and it's no longer about a BMI percentile. I think the assumptions about what, quote, an eating disorder, particularly anorexia nervosa, looks like has kept a lot of people um, from, from getting care. Yeah. So for listeners that may not know what atypical anorexia is, it is that there's, there's a positive in it, which is thank God the field is moving forward and recognizing that it's not just about weight. It's not just about menstrual cycle, that at any size, somebody can be severely malnourished due to restriction, due to, you know, over exercise, whatever it is. But because as you're saying, and I'm sort of just reiterating what you're saying, because it doesn't look like the stereotypical anorexia, that's where it's named atypical. And that is a judgment, right? That is weight stigma in a diagnosis. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Do you feel the field is starting to pay attention and shift? Do you think it's in its infancy stages? Do you think it's still turning a blind eye? I don't think that the field is turning a blind eye. I think that there are a lot of very important players. Um, and, and we also have to acknowledge the field of eating disorders, the treatment of eating disorders in a functional fashion is almost 40 years old now. Eating disorders have existed throughout history, and the treatment is still relatively new. And so I do believe by virtue of a lot of people suffering, to be frank, um, that, you know, adjustments are happening and people are having conversations that are difficult that are asking us as practitioners and as organizations to reevaluate the way that we are conceptualizing care and providing treatment, um, I, I believe that that is happening. And I, as someone who is no longer associated with any programs, um, I have a pretty tiny voice, but I feel really privileged to have um, somehow fallen into a very uh, engaged and present social media following. So I get to share my feelings about this stuff um, 
in ways that I think are being, you know, heard. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you somewhat of a provocative question, which is, do you think that your own thin privilege gets in the way working with clients, either clients feeling comfortable working with you, what they, there's assumptions of what they think, things like that. Sure. I think that um, it's impossible for me to say that my thin privilege is not affecting uh, my client's experience of being in the room with me. And I have clients that live in all different uh, types of bodies. Uh, And one thing that I'm really grateful for um, in the last however many years really, really getting clear about the places that my, like the intersections of my lived experience um, cross over. And so as a human who lives with white, white privilege and thin privilege, I will never know. And I can, I can be a listening ear, but I will never actually know what it is like to be oppressed by virtue of my body size. And so when I am working with clients of that live in larger bodies, first, of course, um, there might be folks who are not comfortable with me, and I I am one thousand percent committed to doing everything I can to make being in my space as comfortable as possible. This is where, as a practitioner, I'm far more oriented to be a listener and someone who is. Um, learning through my clients as compared to being the consummate, you know, expert of all of the experiences. Uh, And unfortunately, our field is made up of predominantly white, predominantly thin women. There needs to be an overhaul of who is in this field. And that being said, um, that's not happening right now. So I particularly in terms of disability, uh, and this is a thing that has been a bit of a work in progress for me, but I am now much, 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 much more inclined to ask my clients what it's like to be sitting in the room with me because I do live with thin privilege, throw on 20 years of MS and muscle atrophy and I have a body that looks a particular way and most commonly when I'm able to ask that question, um, people have, have, you know, one spoken to the fact that yes, like Anna, you are, you are someone that lives within privilege and I appreciate you acknowledging that fact. Um, and for some humans, I'm not, I am not the right person. And so I, I I know that there are um, other exceptional clinicians. Unfortunately, we live in a community that is rich with practitioners, so I can refer out. So that brings me to another subject, sort of shifting a little, but staying on track, because you did bring up your MS. And I know that when you and I worked together at a residential program, there were some challenges navigating or maneuvering throughout the building. What are the challenges for either professionals 
or clients that need treatment that are are in bodies in disabled bodies? So to be frank, um, were I not to have become disabled, I don't know that I would have ever left my job working in the clinic that we shared because I I loved that job. There was some there was something so um, deeply rewarding about the work that was happening, uh, and as I kind of moved through different stages of my disability, it became impossible for me to be an on-site clinical dietitian. And then even in kind of higher up roles, our facilities were not accessible. And I think that is the case for most eating disorder treatment facilities across the board. I don't think that was exceptional. There's nothing exceptional about any one program. Um, But I think about this a lot, you know, were I able to access a program I would have never left it. I would have never stopped, you know, doing that work. And I, my, you know, my heart breaks for the humans who need care and don't get it because their bodies aren't welcome in a space or because they are not getting diagnosed because they're not able to access practitioners who are looking at them in like cohesive ways, looking at all of the different parts of them because disability takes kind of the front of the stage. Well, it's interesting when you said, had you never experienced it, you might not have seen it. I myself feel very naive to the idea that I almost assumed that all buildings, and by the way, I'm just thinking of this right now, and you and I did work together for many years, and I, I don't know if we talked about this, but isn't there a law that they have to be handicap accessible? I don't believe that there is. Hospitals do. Um, but residential programs, particularly ones that are based in homes, um, I'm sure there is a bylaw that allows, I apologize. I'm sure there is a bylaw that allows for um, that to not be the case. I, again, I hate to show my, I, I don't mean to be naive. I just, it, it's, it's still a business. I don't, I don't mean to get into the semantics of, of this, but I, I don't know, like it's still a business. And I was under the assumption that businesses needed to provide that, but I am learning. Well, and I think about, you know, like all of the businesses, particularly like we live in Boston, this is an old ass city. Um, there are plenty of buildings that are not accessible, perhaps not in like downtown Boston, but in like auxiliary towns that are just grandfathered in because they're historical sites or they have just been built, you know, at at a time where accessibility wasn't like the imperative. And I mean, this world is not made for folks who move differently. Do you, and and by the way, everybody, this is not a, an advertisement for any one program or not, so I don't even know if you need to name names, but do you know of any programs? Like, I'm imagining if clients are listening to this right now and they're saying, I, and by the way, I have had clients that are in wheelchairs that have come to my office and said, 
there, there's like no place for me to go. Is there, are there places that you're aware of? I don't, I actually don't know of any. And I'm sure that's not the case. I'm sure that there are newer places. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know of any. Wow. Mm. So, you know, this is, you know, you said that you don't have some lived experiences, but we all come to this work with our own stories and narratives. And, you know, I I bet this influences your work, but in a positive way towards your clients, towards the way you see people just from your experience. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, the way that I interact with folks is deeply affected by the ways that I have been, I don't want to say treated because that's not right, but the ways that I have experienced the world differently. And as a person with an acquired disability, like this, my, my life and my body now is not the life and body that I've always had. And so I, I certainly have a point of comparison There's so many directions I want to go in right now. So I'm sort of, forgive me, everyone. I'm kind of gathering my thoughts. So I think what I want to do is I want to shift a little bit now to certain topics around nutrition. Like, what are your thoughts? And this is a hard turn. I hope it's okay. What are your thoughts on intuitive eating? What are your thoughts for health at every size? These are things that come up in the field that people have different perspectives of. Well, health at every size is a social justice movement. It is, this is not actually, to me, a thing that's actually much up for debate. Um, It is about treating people ethically um, and not furthering damage that has been done by virtue of weight stigma, uh, not making assumptions based on body size. And again, to me, (laughs) health at every size is not saying healthy at every size. It is, it is a social justice movement that we all need to, um, get on. Yeah. (laughs) Because the fact is, like, body diversity happens on purpose. And so many folks are vilified for living in bodies that might not be societally embraced. Uh, And as eating disorder providers particularly, um, it is imperative that we are operating in every section of our experience as health at every size, informed and um, supportive providers. That, that to me, like that's that's a bare minimum. Uh, with regard to intuitive eating, intuitive eating is is a practice, right? And it, there are principles that guide the practice. I believe that one of the things that frustrates me quite a lot about intuitive eating in kind of pop culture is this idea that intuitive eating is the hunger and fullness diet or intuitive eating means eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, period, full stop. And I can't tell you the number of um, intakes I've done that at the end when I ask, what are your long-term nutrition goals? 
everyone says, I want to be an intuitive eater. Um, and part of intuitive eating is actually about breaking down social justice stuff. Part of it is about like giving up. It's not giving up. It's moving beyond the throws and the handhold, like the hand ring of diet culture. That is literally chapter one. And so I believe that intuitive eating in, in some ways, maybe not all of the ways, um, can be incorporated at every stage of eating disorder recovery. Part of intuitive eating is eating just because the food tastes fantastic, even if you're full. Or I always love the the example when um, when Melanie Rogers was on the on the podcast and she talked about when the ice cream truck would come in the summertime. You're not always hungry for it, but it's the ice cream truck. And it tastes really good. And it reminds you of summer. And you're right. And I'm so glad you brought that up. It is not just about eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. It's about eating in all different different ways, just like the ones that I, I expressed. What are your thoughts? How do you, let me say it again. How do you guide somebody to that? I mean, that's, by the way, if we are going to use, when we do use the term intuitive eating, it took me years to understand what intuitive eating was for my own personal self. As a recovered person, I, you know, I think clients say it a little prematurely with all the best intentions. Um, I was not ready for intuitive eating for a really long time. Because I didn't even know my own body sensations. I didn't know my own wants, desires, likes. So how do you explain that with clients? And and how does that, how do they take that message of, it just takes a while? I think that, the, I mean, the way that I speak about it is very much um, along the lines of expressing the idea that it it takes a really long time for us to establish you know, the way that we want to eat. And like as kids, most of us, if we have access to food, we come onto the planet as intuitive eaters. We don't have any judgment about food. We don't have any feelings about, but we don't really have any feelings about food. It's just food. Enter, you know, life with a telephone, which is now like an encyclopedia, which doesn't exist. Like those don't exist anymore because you have everything on your handheld computer. Um, this is a very challenging time to be on the planet and be in a body. It just, it just is. And so when I am talking about intuitive eating for some clients, I might be talking about, um, like moving beyond diet culture for a really long time. It might be about being really good detectives for identifying where diet culture pops into their lives. Um, for others, it might be about getting in touch with somatic sensation. Can you feel what having food in your stomach feels like? Can you give me some sense of like, does this feel like meal hunger or snack hunger? what would it look like to give yourself permission to have your historical quote challenge foods in your space? What, what sort of support do you need to be able to make that happen? Um, and if that doesn't go well, what sort of support do you need to be able to, to have in place 
to do it again. It's it's a really it's a it's a powerful concept. What does Carolyn Costin call it? Conscious eating? Is that is that I, I was just thinking about that. Sometimes I, I just think of my own, I, I forget that I'm doing a podcast. Thoughts just go into my mind and I like to articulate them as I as they happen. Have you noticed you said it's a really hard time to be on the planet in your body? Have you noticed due to COVID, due to the oh my everything that's going on in the world politically, racially, everything? And also uh, quarantine. What are you noticing with your clients now? So to be honest, the statement that I made was more in reference to like what happened in 2012 when everyone got like cell phones um, with computers in them. It has dramatically changed the way that we feel about our bodies and thinking about like what happened prior to 2012 if you went back to a high school reunion, that would be the only time you would see, you know, these other people. Um, And it would be like, okay, so every 10 years, I'm going to see this person. And I don't have any frame of reference for what they have been doing in that decade. And now we have apps that allow for us to get like up to the minute. This is what I ate for breakfast. This is what I ate for lunch. Look at my abs. Um, So there's, you know, there's so much noise out there. Uh, That's one one piece. That by itself is adequate to make it hard to be on this planet and like live in a body at the same time. This is not, this is not a gracious place to be. Uh, And that being said, um, certainly made more difficult in the context of pandemic, in the context of the racial reckoning that is happening in the context of the elected, like the election ex- process that's happening right now, a lot of stuff happening. And I think one of the things that I um, am ever reminded of is just how fucking well eating disorders work when we need them to work. I have a lot of respect for um just for how effectively eating disorders are functional. And this, perhaps more than any other time, there is a global moment where we're all, you know, suffering in our own, in our own ways. Yeah, that that's why we always say, what is the function of the eating disorder? It is not just about food. And it is about food. It is not just about weight, and it is about weight, but it's also about so much more. The function right now is for some people, like you said, to quiet down the noise. There is so much going on right now. You know, one thing that I've been aware of for myself is I can only tolerate so much. I I feel that I am, and 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 especially as somebody who who knows myself well, and I'm a, an educated consumer of the media and whatnot. There are times when I I can't read the news or watch the news or go on social media, and it is really really critical, especially for people with eating disorders, high sensitivity, you know things, you know 
comparing what everybody else is doing during during quarantine and all this stuff, you have to be an educated consumer and say, it is time for me to turn it off. I'm going to share something personal. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, and I can still feel that in my chest when I say that, I couldn't watch the news the whole weekend. I was so afraid that politics, and they did, and this is not a political show, (laughs) were going to get in the way of the immense loss that the world just experienced. And my way to take care of myself and my way to honor her soul was to power down. I I did the same thing. And I'll actually tell you, I have not. I obviously consume the news on my devices, but I have not watched the news since she died. And that, that doesn't make me responsible. It's just, I'm having, it's just, it's, this is a time. Yeah. It's hard. This is a time again, when eating disorder behaviors creep in because people don't have other things to go to. As a recovered person, I have other things to go to. I reach out to my friends and family. I read a good book. I, as all of you know, I turn on Pandora and put 80s music on and sing and dance as loud as I can. I have these tools. Not everybody has that who is struggling with an eating disorder. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about talking about your sister, because you did say at the beginning that there were some stories or narratives that you wanted to share. And by the way, you also are not alone in the idea of professionals going into the field because someone they loved dearly or love, excuse me, (laughs) love dearly had experienced that. So what is it that you wanted to share? So the story that I actually think is most um, important to share is about when I was 18 and Katie was an avid journaler. And I'm pretty sure I was part of the reason she stopped journaling. Um, But we were going to the mall and I was waiting for her to get ready and her journal was open and it said, well, I guess I have an eating disorder. I put her in my car and I went on to berate her for the entirety of our drive. You're so beautiful. You're so smart. You're so good at sports. Everybody loves you. Why are you doing this? Like all of this shamey stuff. Obviously I was 18. I wasn't therapeutically minded at all. I was just worried about my sister. Um, And I think that there's something really important about that story because of the fact that a lot of folks are initially supported by people who have no fucking idea what they are supporting, right? They don't know. If, if you haven't lived with an eating disorder or been closely affected by someone with an eating disorder, you have no idea what it is. Like, like I, am, I am so privileged to have not, you know, struggled with food on my own. Um, and I, I wouldn't have known. I, I didn't, you know, I don't know what I don't know. And we can learn, which is excellent. How do you think 
Katie's, if, if there is a correlation, how do you think Katie's experience shapes or shaped your, your practice, your way of viewing people and clients and working with them? So I never, and I was pretty intentional about not knowing loads of details about Katie's stuff. Like I could surmise, but it really wasn't, I wasn't interested. And there were even times that Katie would ask me questions as a professional and I had to kind of shut it down. Um, I'm certainly not in the business of comparing my sister's recovery to anybody else's recovery. Uh, But I will say, had Katie never struggled, I would have never found this job that I deeply believe that I was, you know, made to do for however like tacky that sounds. I feel pretty strongly that that was the case. That is the case. And so, um, I, I would never say I have gratitude for my sister's struggle. Um, because that, that is a chapter that I know that she would not want to revisit at all. Um, but I am grateful that I am here and I'm really pleased to say that I'm not going anywhere. And, you know, so it was this thing that I did originally for my sister. It, it is such a gift to have been able to be a part of so many humans healing journeys of people who are not my sister, but I care deeply for and care deeply about. Um, recovery happens and is not, you know, it's not easy, but I, I am just, I'm just exceptionally grateful to be in this space. How many times have you sat in a family session where you hear the family members say just what you said to Katie? You're beautiful. You're talented. You're this, you're that. I don't understand it. I hear it all the time. Of course, of course. And so it makes sense that people are naive if they, if they don't have that lived experience, they don't have that lived experience. And it's not because someone's trying to be callous or rude. It's because they don't know what they don't know. And so my being naive as a young person, I mean, for what it's worth, my parents were also naive. So they were not young. I mean, really. (laughs) But like, they were not young when Katie first got sick and it was handled pretty similarly initially anyway. Um, And so, I mean, of course we have sat in meetings and will continue to sit with parents and um, providers, caretakers um, and loved ones who are saying like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. Why are you doing this? Can't you just, can't you just X, Y, or Z? Yeah, I was going to say, insert here, any, stop any behavior. Yeah. I do think, and you also said this earlier about when you, when you said that to Katie, I think people, because they don't know, are just scared. 
and they're reaching. Like they're trying desperately to be like, do you see all these wonderful things that I see in you? And so I, I, I also have, I have, and I know you do too. I didn't mean to say also, but I have compassion when people are reaching like that. And then I also say, oh, you need to go home and read a little bit or listen to some podcasts or, you know, join your own support group because there's so much more to what there's so much underneath that people just, they just don't understand. What do you think it's like for you? Now, this is a question that I've never, I've never asked anyone. So um, I'm not sure how you're going to answer it. As someone who has not herself experienced an eating disorder, what is it like for you working on teams with people, with clinicians and diet, other psychiatrists and whatnot that are recovered? Do you think, and this is a very provocative question, provocative is the, the word of the day today, everyone. Do you think it enhances the experience? Are there times when you're like, oh, I can see they're coming too much from their, they're projecting from their own experiences. I don't know what just made me think of asking it in that way, but there it is. Do you have thoughts? Um, certainly as an outpatient provider, I don't have, I don't have specific thoughts about that. Um, and may, I mean, maybe that's not true. I think that folks sharing their recovery stories um, and like you are a person who is out loud about the fact that you are in recovery Um so nobody is coming to you thinking, hmm, I wonder if Karen has this experience. Like they come to you knowing that they're coming to you. Um, and I don't think that my lack of lived experience makes me less good at what I do. And part of that is because I'm so committed to learning. But more than that, I'm committed to listening. And that is that is what this work is. Um, and so I can't think of a time that I have felt that someone being in recovery is deleterious to their being able to provide exceptional care. I don't think that's true at all. Equally, I don't think it's reasonable to suggest that every treatment provider that is, quote, good at doing eating disorder treatment has to have had no experience with recovery themselves. Of course not course not but I don't I am I am happy to say now at this chapter of my life and career I don't feel like it would be fair for me to be discounted because I don't have like a lived experience and also I don't think that it makes any sense to discount any professional who chooses to be public about being in recovery it's it's very interesting there years ago in the field you were considered somebody who might not be fit, I'll use that word, to work with eating disorders if you've had a lived experience. And there are some professionals that still feel that way. Everyone's entitled to their own their own thought about it. I say all the time, I have sat with professionals who have never had an eating disorder that are hands down the best clinicians and dietitians, you being one of them that I've ever worked with, right? And Anna, we can't experience everything. 
that our clients have experienced, but we can still be there. And like you said, listen, support, guide. It's impossible for us to have experienced everything. Right. And I don't, I don't believe for a moment that we need to have like all of our intersecting identities have to intersect perfectly with the people that we care for. Of course, like that, that's not, that's not real life. The only way that happens is if we're taking care of ourselves. And so I think, you know, finding places where overlap makes sense. And it certainly, I am sure that there are instances in which uh, both being recovered and not having an experience of having lived through an eating disorder has impacted a, a particular human's choice to work with a provider or not, which is entirely assuming that person has the privilege to have access to a, a, a bunch of providers, more power to them. I have, um, I, I, I don't think that I am better because I don't have lived experience. I also don't think that I am less good because I don't. I agree. I agree. Anna, I used to, when we used to sit in staff meetings together, I used to love hearing you talk, the way you spoke about clients, the just every aspect you, and, and as I said, you are one of the examples that I talk about that I'm referring to when I say, I work with people that have never had an eating disorder and they're still my first recommendation for you to go to. It's not that black or white, right? So I agree. And wow, I just sort of flash back to our days sitting around a table at staff meeting. Oh, right? Oh, good times. I know. I miss the days of working with a team like that. Anna, I love you so much. I can't even tell you. My my heart is so full having you here on the program. I'm going to end with a question unrelated to eating disorders. But before we end, is there anything that I didn't ask you or that you wanted to share with listeners before, before we ended? No, I think this one was even better than the first one. And I think we got it all. You're amazing. I love it. Oh my goodness. So this is just evidence, everyone. It does, things don't always work on the first time. It's okay. Doesn't mean you, you, you just have to do it again, right? So Anna Sweeney, my favorite question is, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? I really like this question. Um, and I'm pretty sure it would be something to the effect of like, eat your fucking food, hashtag EYFF. Um, and maybe more now it would be something about an earth suit, but I think that, you know, eat your fucking food. And that's what dietitian Anna says is eat your fucking food. Yep. And by the way, I have many clients that come into my office and they have bracelets on that they made that say EFF or Anna says EFF. So yeah, it starts with that, right? Yep. Anna, I can't thank you enough. It has been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, Karen. I'm delighted to do this again. Fantastic. 
All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. And I look forward to seeing or speaking with all of you next week for another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. All right, everyone. Stay safe. Take care. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.